Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to, well, the whole Bible. We're going to use a lot of it uh, this morning. The New Testament, though. And we'll start in the book of Acts. We're in a series right now entitled Acts. And what we're doing in this series is we're just studying the entire book and we're uh, just taking it kind of verse by verse or a few verses at a time. We're in no hurry uh, to get through it. We just want to make sure we communicate everything that God would want us to communicate. And where we're at in Acts is in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1. And what has occurred in verses 12 through 14 is the disciples have returned to Jerusalem. And the reason they have is because Jesus told them, go to Jerusalem. And so they were being obedient. And this is coming right off the tail of a powerful moment that the disciples had with Christ. And that moment was the moment of ascension, and Jesus blessed them in a way that changed them. We call that a moment around here. It's a moment with Christ, when he blesses you in a way that changes you. And so the disciples have this moment with Jesus, and he says, all right, now I want you to go uh, back to Jerusalem. And so they're obedient, they go to Jerusalem, and they're waiting for the next moment, which is going to be the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends on the church. And what we're learning in this is how do we position ourselves for power? How do we, out of the moments that we have with Christ, then position ourselves either for the next moment or for God to do all that he wants to do? Now, when I say position ourselves for power, I mean it both individually and corporately. Individually, uh, when power works through us, we call that life change or transformation. Corporately, when power moves through the church as a whole, we either call that a movement or we call it revival. And so how is it that we position ourselves for power? Well, we see it right in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Three things that position the disciples for power. One, they were in the right place. They were in the right place. Secondly, they were surrounded by the right people. And third, they were doing the right practices. And so the right place with the right people doing the right practices turns a moment into a movement. And since we're interested in seeing God move in us individually and in moving in us corporately or through us corporately, we want to position ourselves properly for this power. And so that's why in this uh, little series within the series, we're kind of stepping aside um, the book of Acts and looking at some other verses to help build a, a, I guess, a doctrine or an understanding of what does it mean to be first the right place. And so last week I gave this chart. And on one side, it talks about the wrong places. On the other side, it talks about the right places. The wrong places are a place of heresy. Uh, that was the first one. And heresy is just any doctrine uh, that isn't appropriate or teaching that doesn't accord with sound doctrine. The right place then, obviously, is a place of biblical teaching, a place of biblical truth. And, and so we talked through that one last week. And then line two is what we're going to teach through this week. And that is a false gospel. And then, of course, the opposite is the right place. And that is a true gospel. Now, here's why this is important. Historically speaking, as we look in the scriptures and as we look uh, through how God has moved in the church throughout centuries, um, God moves through places that have sound doctrine and preach a true gospel. Next week, I'll hit numbers three, four, and five in that chart. Today, we're going to look at the false gospels versus true gospels. Now, perhaps you're thinking, what's the difference between a heresy and a false gospel? That's a fair question. Let me say it this way. All false, false gospels are heresies. All false, false gospels are heresies. Not all heresies are necessarily false gospels. 
Make sense? Good. Okay. So, for instance, uh, you have people who will say things that sound really good from a doctrinal perspective. For instance, um, the Bible is real. The Bible is infallible. The Bible should be taken literally. The Bible is inspired. But they can still stand on that and proclaim a false gospel. All right? I'm going to point out some of those this morning. There's a passage in Galatians, I'll read it here in a second, and Paul warns basically of people who look like they're standing on proper doctrine, but are advocating false gospels. Let's actually read that passage now. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, says this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Galatia. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. At the very least, what this text is reminding us is that every gospel should not just be accepted immediately because it looks like the gospel. We have to look through it. We have to look underneath it and see what is, what is really holding this gospel up. There are false gospels. But even if we or an angel from heaven, this is his way of saying it doesn't matter how good they seem. Anyone can present a false gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be cursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed. Goes on. For am I now seeking the approval of man? Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would be a servant of Christ. What's he saying there? He's giving the motivation for why false gospels are often taught. He's saying false gospels are often taught because they serve or they please man. And so it's easy to preach false gospels because humanity loves to rally around a good false gospel. Why? Because it feels good. There's elements of it that lift us up or they give the sinful desires of our heart to us under the guise of being the gospel. And so uh, this morning, I'm going to walk through uh, the, the four most common, uh, what I would think are the four most common false gospels of our day. Um, let me give you a definition for false gospel, though, just so when I keep saying this term, we're all on the same page. A false gospel is a story of salvation. I use that term, a story of salvation, because the original gospel is a story of salvation. The gospel is a story. It's the story of Christ coming to earth to rescue us. And so the false gospel is a story of salvation that that negates proper understanding of salvation through Christ, faith, and grace alone. And so anything that would add to our salvation, Christ, faith, and grace alone, is just the story of a false gospel. Now, here's why this is so important. In, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Uh, another translation says, it is the power of God to change lives. The gospel changes lives and leads people into their spiritual freedom. False gospels can change lives, but they don't lead to spiritual freedom. They lead to enslavement. Or false gospels, uh, said another way, they won't change us the way we're actually supposed to be changed. And so when you strip the gospel of its truth, when you strip it of, its, uh, uh, of what is real, then it limits its power. 
That's why this is so important. What it often does also then is it distorts humanity's relationship with God. In the real gospel, our relationship is what? That we are rescued out of our sinfulness by a perfect Christ who was the perfect sacrifice, who died on the cross, and his, uh, his shed blood was the payment of our sin, that we could do nothing to earn it, right? It's activated by faith when we hear the proclamation of the gospel. We step into our salvation. We're made co-heirs with Christ, right? And our humble position is one of a child of God, yes, but completely dependent upon on grace. These false gospels then, often they elevate humanity and our own understanding of who we are, and they lower at times God, or they lower Christ and the work that he did on the cross. One time, I'm going to look at this verse later, Paul writes, like, don't nullify grace by trying to make yourself or give yourself more credit than you deserve for your salvation. That's what's at stake here. Said more plainly, When we believe these false gospels, we think they're leading to freedom, but they're actually just enslaving us in a new way. And because we want to live in true freedom, we need to understand when false gospels and how they might begin to stick in our lives. Let me give you one last verse as a way of setup today. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4 says this, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus... We'll talk about other Jesuses later. Then the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, then you put up with it readily enough. What's he saying? He's saying there are different gospels. Don't receive them. Reject them. Push them away and embrace the true gospel, for it is the true path to freedom. It's the true path to freedom. Let me give you four uh, of what I I would say are the most popular false gospels of our day. Uh, Number one uh, would be the gospel plus prosperity equals salvation. Number two, the gospel plus works equals salvation. Number three, gospel plus hyper grace equals salvation. Number four, gospel plus self-esteem equals salvation. These are probably the four most common false gospels um, today. Now, here's the thing with all four of them. They're distortions. And the truth with any distortion is there's often some truth inside of the distortion. And it's good to understand the truths that are in all four of these, right? Because there's a part of them that is true. They become false gospels, though, when, uh, when the distortion almost elevates over the truth. And I'll try to explain that as we go this morning. We're going to go in order. The first one we're talking about is the prosperity gospel. Uh, and the prosperity gospel, in essence, teaching that the gospel is a pathway to material or physical um, gain. You've probably heard the term health and wealth associated with this gospel. By the way, there's a great documentary on Amazon. Um, I I can't remember the name of it right now, um, which I know isn't that helpful, but uh, if you just Google it, you can find it then on Amazon that walks through this false gospel. And uh, it's supported by secondary doctrines such as this, um, that prayer then just becomes a means to advance your financial agenda, uh, that faith is a tool to produce abundance, 
that poverty was one of the sins that Jesus paid for, um, and that riches are the rewards of proper faith. These are just a couple of the other things that begin to play underneath it. Now, we could dissect each and every one of them, but there's just a couple of um, common questions, I think, that can help us expose what is wrong with these gospels. First, I don't know how you can look at the Lord's prayer, which is Jesus teaching us to pray. There's one line where we ask for our needs, right? And turn prayer into simply a strategy to get God to give you what you want. It's a distortion of the proper relationship we're supposed to have in prayer with our heavenly father. Uh, understanding also then the fullness of this gospel, uh, this false gospel, of course, uh, is, is to say that it is like a pathway to spiritual blessing. Here's the distortion. I just preached on Tuesday, that full sermon on money, and I laid out at the beginning how it is that God is the one who produces wealth for us, that we have to understand that God owns all the money and he lets us steward some of it, that there are overwhelming passages of scripture that talk about how riches do come and are a gift from God, right? And, and they are in the sense that God is the one who gives us the skill, he's the one who gives us the talent, he's the one who gives us the eyes to see opportunity, he's the one who put us in the culture that he did, where our talent and skills align with wealth, all of these things. Those are all true things. But this gospel is distorted then when we see the point of the gospel and the point of our relationship with Christ and to say, if we have enough faith and if we say the right words in prayer, then God is going to richly bless us financially. And that becomes the aim of our gospel. The easiest way to refute this is there are hundreds of millions of Christians around the world who live in absolute poverty. One person says it this way, if you can't preach your gospel in every country, it's not a gospel. It's not a gospel. And to look and to say, hey, if you just had more faith, you wouldn't be in this poverty, right? Another addition to this would be the, the health side of it. Does God heal? Oh, you better believe he does. I actually, this week, maybe it was just in preparation of this as a reminder, heard three separate and incredible stories about God healing people. And God does indeed heal people. We'll see that all through the book of Acts. And God is a healing God, and we should pray that God would heal. Uh, And there are times when um, there is a faith to pray for God to heal, and there is God's will and desire to heal, and those things intersect, and God does something incredible. But don't we all know people of great faith who prayed for healing and it didn't happen? Don't we all know people who, who showed great faith in many other ways and they prayed, God, heal me, God, heal me, God, heal me, and he didn't? In the prosperity gospel, there's no answer to that other than to say, you didn't have enough faith. Oh, but in the true gospel, there's a greater answer and it just says, God's will is somehow bigger and greater, larger and wiser than mine. And we can rest in that that he knows what he's doing. So we pray for healing? Absolutely. Do we around here pray that God would heal people? We certainly do. Is it wrong to pray for your business? Nope, I have one. I pray for mine. You know what I pray? God, give me wisdom on how to lead it. God, give me wisdom on what to do. God, give me wisdom to see things that I wouldn't be able to see without your Holy Spirit wisdom. These are fine things. These are fine things. They become distorted things when our faith becomes a mechanism to our own selfish needs and desires. Let me give you a couple of subtle hints, by the way, that you might believe this false gospel. God, if you've ever prayed this or thought this, God, how come I don't have blank 
even though I've been so faithful? God, how come you haven't given me blank even though I've been so faithful? What's the implication of the prayer? God, I've been faithful, now you owe me. Right? That's the implication of the prayer. Second one, uh, there's just a subtle hint. Um, I'm sure if I have just enough faith and say the right words, then God will give me blank. You see how this distorts the relationship that we're supposed to have with God? What we're trying to do now is to almost treat God like a, uh, like, a, like a computer program that says, if I input this and I input that, then you have to output this. This distorts the relationship between humanity and God. Look what I can do to have to move or to bend God to my will. Sometimes people in this prosperity gospel alignment will quote James. And it says this, you have not because you ask not. You know what the next line is? <laughs> it says, because when you ask, you ask with selfish motives. Okay. And it's not just a line that was like, oh, if you want it, ask for it. <laughs> no. It was a line that says, when you ask, examine your heart. Why are you praying this? Why are you asking this? The sad thing about this is that there is such a more beautiful thing that God can grant us than material um, wealth or physical health. He's given us the gospel that saves us. He's given the gospel that redeems us. And even in the beauty of um, our sickness, God can advance his gospel in incredible ways. Haven't you seen that? Isn't this evidence enough? Haven't you seen how God has used this sickness to, um, to advance his gospel in beautiful ways? Can't we then in there see that sometimes that is even somehow in God's will that he uses all of these things to align with his perfect will? Number two. By the way, the response to all of these false gospels is to just repent and to receive the true one. And, and I would say, probably speaking, I'm, I'm making a generalization here, that most of us here, um, it's probably not that we've put our entire, like hitched our entire um, wagon to uh, one thing here, right? Or like, and said, so like, I, I put all of my, maybe eggs in another basket, I'm going to use that one. Okay, like I put all of my eggs in the basket of one of these false gospels. I think what's probably more realistic is that little hints of these, uh, all four of these have worked their way into us right? Like little, little parts of it. And, and so this might not be a total flip, but what's happened is a little bit of, uh, of false gospel has kind of begun to work its way into our hearts. And number two, um, Jesus plus works. Jesus plus works. And so this one is pretty simple. It's, it's uh, me and Jesus, we make a pretty good team. Me and Jesus, we can do this salvation thing. Like, like uh, with, with all that Jesus has got going for him and all of the good things that I've got going on in me, we're going to get there. Most of us would not um, say out loud that we believe this to be true. But underneath, there's these little signs uh, that, that we might be believing this. I want to try to give you some of these. Um, this is one that I think traps people a lot. Um, and and it, it can trap people of all different backgrounds. Right? I mean, many of us come out of Catholic backgrounds. I mean, the Catholic Church still hasn't renounced the Council of Trent, which in essence said that if you don't believe in um, a salvation by, um, by works uh, and salvation, or I'm sorry, by Christ and works, right, that that is wrong. 
And so a lot of us have that as a foundation, okay? And then a lot of us even have that in Protestantism or if we grew up in evangelicalism. And again, a lot of times we are able to speak out loud. No, my salvation is a result of grace and faith and it's only that. And we would say that out loud, but underneath there's still kind of this works-based thing at play. Let me give you a couple of examples of how you might be able to identify this. In fact, I think the easiest way to identify this is if somebody were to ask you, hey, why are you a Christian? You would probably start with these two words. Because I. Because I. And then there would be this list. And a lot of times what these are, if we're honest, is it's self-justification. Oh, because I, and sometimes we're not so obvious, but other times if, we're, if we are honest with ourselves, we, we see, oh, wow, this might be a problem. Well, God, because I, I go to church pretty regularly. I even pay attention most Sundays. I give a little bit, I serve a little bit because, because I grew up in this because my grandparents helped start that church because, um, um, because my parents were of great faith because we prayed a lot because I got baptized as a kid and then I got baptized again as a teenager because I went through catechism because um, we made sure that our kids got baptized uh, because we grew up knowing that morality was good because we still celebrate Christmas, not holidays, because all of these little things that begin this justification inside of us, and in the end, we would say, like, I know that I'm probably good. I am more moral than most people, and I've done all of these kind of rites of passage in Christianity, uh, and I'm generally a good person, and more than other people. People like I associate with the church and things like that. And so I'm, I, I think I'm okay. This is the more subtle approach to this one. Now, this one, I think, more than maybe any of the other three, um, is one that is easy to fall prey to. And in it, what we're doing is um, exactly what Paul described when he said uh, that our, our works of righteousness are but filthy rags before the king. That none of those things justify us before God. We are only justified before the heavenly father and therefore reconciled to him because of one thing, our belief in Christ, his righteousness for our sinfulness. Jesus saves us we don't save us. And again, the easiest way to understand if you've begun to fall prey into this one is to begin to ask yourself the question, any of those things that I just said, is that how you would have answered the question? Well, because I do go to church or because I am getting my kids on there on Wednesday night because I, and you build this self-justification. Or can you simply say, I'm a, I, I, because Jesus that's why I'm a Christian. Jesus saved me. I don't know why he picked me. I don't know why he would rescue me. I know the sinfulness in my own heart, but he made me new. He saved me out of my sin. That's why. That's why. Number three. Number three. Um, the hyper-grace gospel. And this is where it gets tough because the hyper-grace gospel is um, basically a pendulum swinging from the um, workspace gospel. 
And, and they can both be dangerous, okay? Now, hyper-grace uh, gospel, this is the idea that... Um, let me read what I wrote. The, the hyper-grace gospel is, in essence, offering a gospel that covers the believer regardless if there is a desire to change and be transformed or not. And here's kind of the idea. There is a scripture that says everything is permissible, uh, right, though everything is not beneficial. It's this idea that, like, like uh, you, you can't tell me what is right and wrong. Like, I am under grace. I can do whatever I want. And where this then goes bad, right, is it true that we are under grace and there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Absolutely. That is 100% true. We are free in Christ. And our response when we sin should not be, I need to earn my place back. Our response should always be, I want to receive the grace of Christ. But Paul himself warned of this type of hyper-grace gospel in Romans chapter 6. And so with all things in scripture, we have to look in and understand what is the full understanding of it. And so Romans chapter 6 says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Oh, grace, the power and the beauty of grace is not just that I have a, a grace that covers me in my sin. The power and the beauty of grace is that I have a grace that compels me to want to sin no more. Let me say how the writer of Hebrews says it. And one of the dangers of a hyper-grace gospel is that we don't need to talk about sin anymore because we're dead to it and, and we don't even need to confess sin because we're covered from it and all of these types of things. But then you read scripture and you go, well, hold on. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a, get this, fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. adversaries. This is when we need a full Bible. And we need a full understanding. Do we have a powerful grace? Yes, we do. Do we have a grace that covers every sin? Yes, we do. But the author ends this little subject by saying this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. If this grace does not compel in us a desire for holiness, if it does not compel in us this desire to repent from sin, or as the text says, uh, you can't go on deliberately sinning uh, and not feeling conviction over it and then also just rest and say, well, yeah, but grace has got me. He's saying there should be some change here at some point, or he says there is a fearful expectation of judgment. You see how, why this is so important that we're always studying and we're always understanding the fullness of Scripture? Because it's easy to go in and to say, man, God has blessed me incredibly. And there's some of us who could say that question, right? Uh, and then we could look at other people and just say, hey, if you just have faith, God will do the same for you. Okay, maybe. Then there's others of us who, who out of the salvation that we have earned, we're now working hard for the gospel and we're going and it's all coming out of this grace that we've received. But the person who is working out of the grace they've received can be working right alongside to somebody who is working, 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 working because they think out of that work, then they'll receive grace. And sometimes it's hard to see on the outside. 
And then there's this idea, right? Like, oh, I'm working, 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 working. Okay, I just need to discover grace. And then we discover grace. And we're like, oh, this is the most beautiful thing in the world. And grace, after um, aligning up in that works salvation, grace is the most beautiful, freeing thing in the world. But then even in that, if we're not careful, what we can do is we can fall over this ledge that says, ah, I'm covered by grace, nothing matters. Ah, no, 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 no. Okay, now I'm covered by grace, and and because I'm covered by grace, I I hate sin, and because I'm covered by grace, I want to repent, and because I'm covered by grace, I run from it, and the grace compels me away from it, and he is still a, he's still the living God. He's still the holy God. I know he's a gracious and a loving God, but he's the gracious, loving, and holy God, and so I don't want to go on sinning anymore. I want to be done and changed. These are the proper gospels. The fourth one is this. Again, all of these have elements of truth. That's why they're difficult, okay? Um, Number four, um, I'm gonna call this the self-esteem gospel. The self-esteem gospel. And the self-esteem gospel, which I think is actually pretty rampant today, uh, is, uh, and the self-esteem gospel is kind of like, connected itself to other elements of our current society. And, and what the self-esteem gospel is basically saying that, that the point of the gospel is for us to feel good about ourselves. The point of the gospel is to make us happy. The point of the gospel is to um, uh, center us. The point of the gospel is, is to solve anything in, a, uh, in the mental health realm. The point of the gospel is just about making us who we want to be. This is a dangerous gospel. It's a dangerous gospel. Oftentimes in this dangerous gospel too, it'll um, compel certain things like, well, if that's hard, then it's probably not from God. If that's gonna make you unhappy, it's probably not from him. No, you know why we sin? Because we like it. That's why you sin, because you like it. Probably because to an element, it makes you happy. Uh, And the gospel would call you to, to crucify that and to sacrifice it, right? And so this, this self-esteem gospel, by the way, and, um, this one probably became more common uh, in our churches through about 50 years ago. There was this preacher named Robert Schuler, and he wrote this book, and, and I wrote this book like 10, you read this book, no, I didn't write it. I read it, and, and I read it about 10 years ago, and when I did, man, it like messed me up for a couple of weeks because it was really interesting to see how this guy who wrote this book that was blatant false gospel heresy, which in essence said like um, that sin is just anything that is an affront against your self-esteem. What? No, sin is anything that is a front against a holy God. That's what sin is. And this guy mentored people right, who became hugely influential in the modern church. And then over generations now, right, we have a church culture and a church environment that is very me-centered. And we have a lot of gospels, okay, that have come down here. So call, like, you know, Mr. Schuler there, like the grandfather of this, like, me-centered gospel movement, where the gospel now in many church environments is all about, like, you and how beautiful you are and, um, uh, and how you can just take the scriptures and uh, use a little bit of them and they, they should make you feel good about yourself and very you-centered. Listen, here's the other thing that's wrong or that's hard about this. Is the gospel about you? Well, of course you play a role in like it. 
But the gospel is ultimately about what Christ has done to rescue you from you. Because the problem is you. You're the problem. And so it's not about discovering you. Because what you're going to discover is you're the problem. Jesus is the solution. Okay? The gospel... The gospel is a call to come to die to self, not a call to come discover self. Discover all you want. What you're going to find is your rebellion and your rejection of God, of how you think you understand it better, how you want to write your own rule book, how you want to be happy doing your own things. And the gospel is Christ died on the cross and paid the penalty of all of that sin so that you could now take on him. That's why it says in Colossians, right? He is your life now. You are now clothed in Christ. Okay, the point is not for you to become more you The point is for us to become like Jesus, okay? And so this is the fourth one. And these are all dangerous, and and they all have elements of truth because those of us who have experienced the goodness of the gospel have discovered a joy and have discovered a happiness. I mean, I preached a whole sermon. There are probably some people who don't go to our church because they get onto our sermon, and there's a sermon series that says, does God want you to be happy? And they probably look at it and they go, oh, yeah, look at that. There's another youth-centered gospel preaching. Now, they are youth-centered preaching. And they probably didn't actually watch it, right, the series. But underneath it was the simple idea that, yeah, God wants you to be happy. And you know the way to be happy? Lose yourself and find him. And find him. And that's in all of these things. Is there an excessive, lavish grace that comes from Christ? Yes. And what does it do? It compels me to go and sin no more. Do I work feverishly out of um, the gospel? Yes. Why? Because Christ rescued me. So what better thing could I do than to just say, you can have all of me. I will give you all of my effort, all of my energy, everything that you have. I will become the hardest worker. Oh, but in its proper place, I am not working to receive the gospel. I am working because I already have it. Does God bless us lavishly? Man, So much so. So much so. And sometimes it is material. And sometimes it is healing. And sometimes there are things in the physical world that God turns in and he blesses, right? And so we always then have to go back. And we have to examine our hearts and to make sure that we have not begun to too deeply believe these false gospels. That our heart is still rooted in the true gospel. And here's, by the way, here's how we we, we can kind of know on some of that. God, if you didn't answer any of the prayers on financial, God, if you didn't answer any of the prayers on healing, I would worship you the same. I'd worship you the same. God, if I, I will work and work and work and work out of what you have given me. And if you never grant me anything else, that would be okay because I have everything I need in the salvation you already secured for me. God, When I sin, I will run. I will run to you and repent. And I will receive the grace that you have lavished on me. And I will pray that you would compel my heart to never want to do it again. Right? And God, I will find my deepest identity 
in who I am in you, in who I am in you. And it will produce a beautiful joy. All of this, then, is how we apply the, the true gospel into these false gospels or to make sure that we're properly checking and examining our hearts. Um, one last thing, then, before I get into the real gospel. Another way that you can begin to see this type of false gospel stuff play out is people like to attack Jesus. And whenever you see um, Jesus, like the text in 2 Corinthians said, uh, don't accept a different Jesus, um, here, here are a couple of um, uh, key indicators on the proper Jesus, okay? The proper Jesus. Uh, if you ever hear a gospel that says anything other than this about Jesus, run away. Number one, that he was both fully God and fully man. Number two, that he was incarnated as a man. Number three, that he was born of a virgin. Number four, that he was sinless. He did not inherit our sinful state, and also he did not remove his godness. Number, I can't remember what number I'm on. Next number, that he willingly gave his life as the predestined plan of God. That his death was the payment for sin, and that the shedding of his blood was absolutely necessary and required for our salvation. That he is the only path to reconciliation and redemption. That he rose again, that he ascended into heaven, that he mediates on our behalf, and that he is coming again. That's Jesus. And anything that would mess with that Jesus is a false gospel, is a distortion of the truth and should be run from. Okay? Now, what do we have to do? Well, instead of always, uh, like, I wanted to point out these false gospels to us so we can check our own hearts, but then we always just end with the beauty of the true gospel. So I just want to give you a couple of verses today that just remind us of the beauty of the real gospel. Let's start in Galatians, which is the other way. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 through 12. This comes right after the opening passage I read this morning. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The true gospel, you know it's true because it's God's, not man's. And you say, well, did God speak directly to every proclaimer and preacher of the gospel now like he did to Paul? No, but he has spoken directly through what? His word. And so now we have this as the revelation of what the true gospel is. Number two, uh, Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We can't earn our salvation, and we can't nullify the cross by saying, Jesus and me make a pretty good team. Jesus and you do make a pretty good team. You're just not doing anything. First Corinthians 2, 1 through 2. By the way, if that's not like the best news ever, I don't know what is. Okay? And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel is simple. The gospel is simple, and sometimes it sounds like foolishness to the rest of the world. Every time it sounds like foolishness to the rest of the world. Christ in our place. 
I was dead in sin. Christ died for that sin. He rose from the grave. I believed in it by faith. He poured out it to me, and now I responded to it, and I'm saved. And Paul says, I I know nothing else. I have nothing else. Jesus died, and he rose again. That's it. Next one, Romans 5.8. But when did he do this? When, when was this gospel activated? Well, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when you began to earn it. Not when you got a little bit better. Not when you like, okay, God, I did my part. Now I need you to do your part. No, God already did his part. And his part he did when you and I were rejecting and rebelling against him. While we were sinners, he died for us. Next verse, Titus 3, 5 through 7. This might be a new verse for some of us. Um, It gets overshadowed by some of its more popular counterparts, but it's one of my favorites. Titus 3, 5 through 7. I love the opening three words. He saved us. He saved you. Why are you a Christian? Because Jesus. Because Jesus, Jesus saved me. He saved me you. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is Titus 3, 5 through 7. It is some of the most concise, doctrinally sound gospel verses in all of the scriptures. It's so good, I gotta read it again. He saved you, not because of your works done by your righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In other words, the deciding factor on your salvation wasn't what you did. The deciding factor on your salvation is the fact that Jesus is merciful, that he would rescue you from your rebellion. Stop giving yourself credit. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens. That's when you know that you've accepted and embraced the true gospel. Because it just washes in like a flood. And it sends out all of the me-centered stuff. All of the self-seeking stuff. All of the I can do it myself stuff. All of the hey, I did something once and I'm covered and I don't have to do anything else stuff. It just washes out there. And what is replaced in it then is just this desire to worship and to serve the one who just rescued you. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. See, what happens then when this new gospel just rushes in you uh, and and breaks through you is your desire then is to do all of the good works. Like, I want to do every one of them. I want to do all of them. Like, when you're earning or working your salvation, often you're like, I'm going to do just enough that's going to self-justify myself. 
But once the gospel has broken in, it's fair game to everything. I've said it this way, and let me say it this way before, that our response typically to God's grace in the effort then or the work that we do on the other side of salvation is directly proportionate to how dependent we think we were on Christ for our salvation. Did you get that? Let me say it this way. I will give effort on the other side of my salvation. I will give surrender to um, Christ. I will give, uh, I will, I will offer myself as a living sacrifice on the other side of my salvation, right? To the extent that I believe that my salvation was completely dependent on Christ. So on the other side of my salvation, if I think, yeah, it was kind of like half Jesus and half me in my salvation, then, then, then on the other side of it, I'll go, you know what? That's better than for you to ask for half of my life. And so I'm going to give you half. I'm going to give you a little bit of this, but I'm not going to give you that. And those, by the way, those, by the way, who, who think... Like, uh, my salvation is mostly upon me. Like, I showed up to that church one day. I show up, uh, uh, you know, and I did that thing, and I did the catechism thing when I was a kid, and all of that kind of stuff. And so on the other side of my salvation, now what? And I was like, I'll give you a little bit, God. I'll give you some tips here and there, and, and I'll try to do a couple of good deeds and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, but then, but then when you realize the true gospel, when you realize the true gospel and that it was completely dependent upon him, the only place you can go is, okay. You've got it all. There is nothing that you cannot ask of me. There is nothing you cannot ask of me because without you, 100%, I would still be on the other side of salvation. And you're the one who got me in, so now I'm all yours. I'm all yours. Romans 6, 4. Last verse. We were buried, therefore, with him. We were buried, therefore, with him. It's another reminder of saying the old you is dead. The old you is dead. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. By the way, if you haven't been baptized as a believer in Christ, get baptized this Friday. Let me know afterwards. We're going to share the story of what God is doing in your heart. We're going to baptize you on Friday because it tells us right here we should. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you understand the power of that metaphor? In the same way that Jesus died. And did Jesus die? Yes. He was dead. There was no breath left in him. And then in the same way that Jesus resurrected from the grave, now fully alive, given the new resurrected body, he's saying, that's what it's like for you to experience salvation. The old you is now as dead as Jesus was dead, and the new you is now as alive as Jesus was alive. Come on. Whew. And why then? Why do we settle for these false gospels and build movements around them and, and let our hearts get prone to them? They're deceptive and they lead to slavery. But the true gospel, man, it sets us free. Let me end with this. This gospel then has to permeate every part of who we are. That newness of life has to take over everywhere. And it all comes back to the gospel 
So today, are you in need of your salvation to rescue you out of one of these false gospels? You need the true gospel. Repent and believe in it today. Have you gone astray? You need the gospel. Are you stalled in your faith today? You need the gospel. Oh, because nothing's going to motivate you more than remembering your desperate state without him, but how he came and rescued you when you didn't deserve it. Have you become lazy in the kingdom? You need the gospel. Wake up. He rescued you. Are you caught in sin? You need the gospel. He died for that sin. And he gave you a grace that is so powerful to no longer desire it. Have you fallen in love with the world? You need the gospel. Oh, there is a treasure so much more valuable than all the trappings of this world. Have you lost hope because of your present circumstances? You need the gospel. Turn to him. Are you addicted, hurting, lost, confused, dejected? You need the gospel. Let it flood your heart again. Let it flood your heart again. She's amening me. Isn't there that Bible verse, when the adults won't cry out, the babies will speak? <laughs> Amen. Listen, there's about 49 pregnant women in this church, so get used to it, all right? It ain't going anywhere. Hmm, I'm done, Okay. Father, would you rescue any of us out of our false gospel pretenses or tendencies? We repent if we've given any of them room in our heart that they ought not to have. We don't want a pendulum swing so far to the other side that we forget the truth. You are a God who blesses. You are a God of excessive grace. You are a God who compels us to now to work for your kingdom. You are a God who gives us a deeper identity and value in you. But help us to understand it in the truest form. Help us to see our absolute desperate need that leads us to absolute full surrender. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.